Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are both U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are those of the hosts, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by myself are my own and not those of my employer or any other businesses that I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, we have a special guest, Doug Burks. Thanks so much for coming on the cast. Could you give us a quick intro? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm Doug Burks. I was uh, born and raised in Augusta, Georgia, lived here all my life. And uh, growing up on a little bitty dirt road, uh, didn't have too many friends to play with. So I, I got a computer when I was seven, was instantly hooked on computers and this world of programming. And when I was in middle school, I, I read The Cuckoo's Egg by Cliff Stoll. And that kind of got me excited about the world of cybersecurity, even before it was really a term, even before it was really a thing. And uh, so ultimately, I, I went to college, got my computer science degree. And as soon as I finished that, I got really focused on cybersecurity and worked through several certifications. I taught for SANS for a little while and ultimately went to work for Mandiant as the Deputy Chief Security Officer working for Richard Baitlick. Had a great time there. Uh, and uh, eventually, after starting this little open source project, which kind of snowballed into something greater than I ever imagined, uh, turned that into a company. So I started Security Onion Solutions LLC in 2014, and I've been doing that ever since. So uh, it's been a, a great joy and privilege to, uh, to be on this journey and to be able to do something that I love and that I'm passionate about, uh, but that can help others as well. Awesome. And again, thank you so much for coming on. And for some of our listeners that might not be as familiar with Security Onion, can you just give us a quick, hey, what is this and, and what does it do? Absolutely. So I started Security Onion in 2008 as a means for helping folks to peel back the layers of their networks and to make their adversaries cry. And the idea was that, you know, there's all these great open source projects out there for monitoring network traffic, for analyzing it, for generating IDS alerts. But at the time in 2008, there really was no overarching platform that combined all of those tools into kind of a single cohesive environment. Uh, and, you know, this really kind of hit home for me when I was working a security incident one time and it became readily apparent very quickly that the adversary was using uh, what was then called Backtrack Linux, now called Kali Linux. And, and that's really kind of this easy to use distro for red teamers, for attackers. It's got all the great open source tools already compiled, already configured. But we as blue teamers, we as defenders really didn't have the equivalent of that for our tools. And so to me, that was really kind of fundamentally unjust, you know, that the attackers have so many advantages already and this was uh, yet another advantage. And so this is really kind of my attempt at trying to rebalance that equation. Um, and, you know, to further that point, you know, I kind of, I got involved with all these kind of individual open source projects, things like Snort and Bro and uh, all of these projects and could see folks on the mailing lists kind of struggling with, getting the software compiled and getting it configured to do the right thing. And, you know, 
that's even before they get to do their real job of catching bad guys, you know? And so to me, if we can sort of accelerate this process of getting folks spun up so that they can spend more time focused on actually looking at the alerts, looking at the logs, doing threat hunting, and finding those adversaries that are hiding out in the nooks and crannies of their networks, that's really what it's all about, uh, is, is helping to build this community of defenders that go faster and faster and get better and better every day uh, to really take the fight to the adversaries. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. And, and what kind of my spin or what I, what I tell my Marines a lot of times is we have a lot of exquisite tools and they're all pretty good at what they do. And probably the most difficult thing is getting them to work together, the integration piece. Uh, and, and, and that's what I love about uh, Security Onion because it's done an amazing job just putting that all together and all the tools that you love or that you've used or you have experience with all in their one package working together. Uh, it, it really is pretty impressive. Uh, so it sounds to me like what, what you were saying is that your original problem in 2008 was kind of lowering, lowering the barrier to entry and kind of balancing the scales a little bit between offense and defense. Uh, would you say that that, that problem that you originally went out to fix or to address, do you think in, in 2021, is it, the, is it still the same problem? Are, are you just trying to, to continually play cat and mouse with the black hat hackers? Or has, has your problem shifted a little bit in, in 2021 space is a little bit different than you started out? I think that's a great question. You know, I think if you, if you zoom out far enough, I think what you, what you see is that it's, it's always the same problem, right? I, I mentioned earlier the cuckoo's egg by Cliff Stoll. Uh, you know, if we go back to, you know, what Cliff was facing back in the late 80s and trying to catch these German hackers that were stealing United States government secrets, um, it's, it's really the same thing that's happening today, right? It's, it's all about um, getting some sort of a signal and using that signal and, and sort of pulling the, the string on it and seeing where that investigation takes you and trying to figure out more and more ways to collect more telemetry to figure out what's going on and to piece this puzzle together. And so I think from that aspect, nothing has really changed, right? It's, it's always going to be about what does an adversary have to do in order to be successful? They have to get into your environment. They have to pivot around until they find whatever it is they're looking for, whether it's credit card numbers, social security numbers, you know, top secret classified information, whatever the case may be, and then ultimately try to get that data out. So that means that you know, we've got tremendous opportunities to be able to detect that kind of movement, that kind of activity on the way into the environment, across the environment, and then back out the environment. So from that perspective, you know, I, I think it's, it's really the same thing that we've always been doing for the past 20 years. It's just that some of the technologies have changed, some of the acronyms have changed, and, and some of the details have changed. But overall, to your point, you know, I, I think it's, we're still trying to solve that same problem of 
helping defenders to peel back the layers of their networks and make their adversaries cry. Uh, and so we are, it's the same mission, uh, but we, you know, we continually refine our tool set as there's new tools that come into play, uh, as there's older tools that are, you know, they become legacy. And so we kind of decommission those, but ultimately we want to remain fresh. We want to remain viable. We want to remain that best of breed collection of open tools that allow a, a defender to, in just a few minutes, spin up some, some network sensors and some collection backends to bring in all this data and then to make, help them to make sense of it. Uh, and, you know, whatever we can do to, uh, number one, kind of think about what we would want as defenders ourselves. And number two, n- not just develop in a vacuum, but really listen to our community. And that means, you know, going on podcasts like this and kind of engaging in conversations and getting input and feedback from you all as to how things are doing and and what are the challenges that you're facing and and what are the ways that we can improve and help to address those challenges. Excellent. And and a follow-up on that, uh, as the CEO kind of, you know, because you're the first one we've had on the cast, and I, I'm very interested to kind of see how the role works. Would you say that that your role as CEO in this process is more making sure that the product stays focused on what the customers are looking for, or is it more your role to kind of make sure that the trains run on time and, and that the tool is efficient, scalable, uh, et cetera, or, or is it a balance between the two? Or, or, or and Doug, you don't get to take the cop-out answer of I'm the CEO, I do it all. You have to be specific. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the CEO, I do it all. Yes, no, no, no. there it is. Check in the box. Uh, so, all right, we can all go home. <laughs> so so I, I do wear a lot of hats. So I kind of wear the CEO hat. I kind of wear the CTO hat. Um, I still consider myself to be a threat hunter, a defender, you know, so when I get up in the morning, I spend a certain amount of time every single day doing some good old fashioned network defense. I look at my network sensors and I do some threat hunting uh, because that's very important to me to stay fresh and to keep those skills sharp. And, you know, what we what we want to avoid there is turning into a company that you know, gets away from that original mission or gets away from being relevant for the community and for the customers that are using the software. So I think to your point, you know, we we kind of use that as our, our guidepost in terms of, you know, making sure that, you know, we've, we've got this entire spectrum of ideas that we want to pursue. We've got all these opportunities that we can pursue uh, but as we all know, there's there's only a certain number of hours in the day. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, wearing that CEO hat specifically, it's always a delicate balancing act because, you know, I, I have to kind of balance uh, the the needs of the community, the needs of our customers and and our own uh, sort of number of hours internally that we have as a company. And. And all of those variables are all kind of constantly changing, right? Because uh, we, we're a small company, but we're growing. Uh, we, we just hired a couple of folks and we have more folks joining soon. 
And so that means we can do more, but at the same time, it's, it's still a balancing act because if we try to take on too much, uh, then you know, that, could, that could still be detrimental in the end. And you could run into quality issues. You could run into, you know, well, you know, you've been struck by the good idea fairy and, and it sounded like a good idea uh, and you went and implemented it, but you didn't really think it through. Uh, you didn't really test it in real world environments. And so, you know, we're very kind of balanced in everything that we do in terms of does this make sense from a community standpoint, from a customer standpoint, um, from an internal standpoint of, of can we can we build this? Can we support it? Can we maintain it for the long term? Uh, because, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go and build a feature or integrate some other technology. Uh, and then it's it's painful and it kind of dies on the vine uh, and it ends up leaving a bad taste in the mouths of the, the customers or the community. Okay. So Doug, I want to ask you a specific question about this because I'm always so fascinated, especially in the open source community about how things get created, right? And how I feel like there's very little middle ground. You always have the lightning bolt of inspiration moment and sort of the Silicon Valley version of, I went into a garage for three days and came out and had this amazing product or this uh, very long, like I built it nights and weekends over the course of six years and then did this massive reveal to create it. And I, I'm interested to understand when you started this, like, how did you build this initially? Like, what what was the process like for you? How long did it take? And then once it was released, how much did that crazy beast evolve over time? You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this story myself uh, because, you know, if you had if you had told me back in 2008 that we'd be sitting here talking about it in 2021, I would have said you're crazy, you know. Uh, because in 2008, this really kind of started as I was writing a research paper for SANS, uh, a SANS gold paper. And so I wanted to take a few tools and kind of stitch them together and build a live CD. And so it took probably a couple of months. Hey, can I pause to... you for a second here, Doug? So sure. for those of you who may not remember what it was like back in 2008, a live CD was the thing you put in a CD-ROM in a computer and booted off of it in order to kind of start with a pristine operating system that wasn't polluted by whatever you were trying to look at and or was a, a uniform start every time. Very similar to creating like launch AMI in AWS or start new image. Just want to throw that out there. Sometimes we forget uh, the age of some of our audience members and wanted to provide that. I've uh, I've gradually become a grumpy old man uh, yes. as as yes. things like live CD those kind of terms are kind of lost on you know a certain generation of folks that don't have as many gray hairs as I do um, so I, I appreciate you uh, clarifying that and pointing that out um, so so that's kind of how it started out and it, the idea was you know let me take some some tools that that I want to use as a defender. And let me put them together and allow other folks to kind of play with them and experiment with them as quickly and easily as possible. So that initial thing I started in 2008, it took a few months. The first version came out in 2009. And, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you, you kind of say, well, you know, I spent the last few months building this thing and, and I think it's pretty awesome and I'm going to put it out there and, 
And, and maybe if other folks think the same, maybe, you know, the world will beat a path to my door, you know? And so I, I put that initial announcement out there and, and it was, it was kind of crickets. I'll be honest. It was, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of interest out there uh, for the first couple of versions that I released. And uh, so at some point, uh, probably in, I don't know, late 2009, maybe early 2010, I had kind of moved on to other things. Uh, and I had kind of given up on the Security Onion concept for a, a little while. And uh, because if, you know, if nobody else is, is really going to be interested in it, why should I continue spending time on it? So, you know, I, I was crying myself to sleep for a while, you know, but it was okay. I, 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 life goes on. But at some point uh, later, I kind of, I felt this need to, you know, I needed to rebuild the tool set for myself because my, my career path was changing a little bit. And so I, I kind of needed the tools again. So I said, well, if I'm going to build it for myself, I might as well rebuild it for everybody else and put it back out there again. And so I did. And uh, it was about that time that, that Richard Baitlick, who was a longtime hero and role model of mine, uh, he found the project and he reached out to me. He was like, hey, Doug, this is really cool. Would you mind if I used Security Onion in my classes that I teach? And, you know, when your hero and role model asks if he can use your pet project, well, yes, obviously, please. Uh, and so, you know, when somebody like Richard Baitlick, who at the time had something like 40,000 followers on Twitter, uh, many more than that today, when they start talking about something, uh, people listen. And so Richard started talking about it and blogging about it and teaching it in his classes. And that's when things really kind of took off or started taking off for the Security Onion project. And uh, so... You know that was that was really kind of the start of the the climb into this, uh, but you know this was still kind of a, a hobby project, and for a long time it was it was still just kind of this live CD thing where it wasn't wasn't really meant to be used in production. It was supposed to be this experimental thing, uh, but you know kind of kind of unbeknownst to me, I, I started finding out that folks were were actually deploying it in production uh, and. You know, so um, when I would put out a new release, there really was no in-place upgrade mechanism. So, you know, these folks that were running in production, they would have to essentially burn their sensors down and rebuild them from scratch, you know, but they were willing to do that because it was better than the alternative. You know, previously they may have been kind of manually compiling all this software and spending, you know, I heard from folks that were taking weeks and sometimes months to get all this software compiled properly. Uh, and this is something that they could do in, you know, just a few minutes using the live CD. And, you know, so that kind of encouraged me to go on and, and ultimately, um, you know, that's when we kind of transitioned from a live CD to a, an in-place upgrade mechanism. And now it's actually supported to run it in production. Um, and, you know, things just kind of continued from there and uh, the community grew. You know, it was very important to me. I, I've been involved in open source since 1997. And, you know, one of the things that I, I realized over the years was that uh, open source projects live or die really based on the community that springs up around them. 
So it's very important to me to try to foster that community as much as possible. So I spent a lot of time and effort uh, trying to engage the community and, you know, started very early on with a, a, a mailing list hosted by Google groups and tried to do Go a Google. social media thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, it was very important to, to try to grow this thing and make it so that it's not just about me. Uh, it really and truly is about the community and uh, because the the community is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, it's, it's this synergistic thing of, you know, we can take this guy over here and this gal over here and we can, we can cross pollinate all their ideas and we can help to troubleshoot issues and we can come up with ideas and suggestions for improvements. And as a community, we all kind of lift each other up and, and bring us all to a, a much higher, more elevated position. And so it's, um, you know, again, it's, it's really kind of amazing to me, the journey that we've been on. Um, and I've, I've heard several times over the years, the, the old quote of, you know, it, an overnight success takes 10 years, you know, and, and, and I really and truly feel that now that, you know, looking back, it really has taken this many years to get to a place where, you know, I feel like this is my little baby has grown up. Uh, and you know, this is something that is, uh, much larger than me. It's, it's not about me. It's about the community. It's about giving back to that community. Uh, and, and again, really helping defenders to defend themselves. As a uh, as a big open source fan myself, especially uh, Wireshark, I think I've mentioned on the cast a couple times. Huge fan there. Uh, one, I got I got to give you kudos. I think this is probably my favorite implementation of Wireshark. The fact that you can have an IDS alert flag, and then you can just I think it's like two clicks, and you can be in those exact packets without sifting through, without messing around. Like uh, that that is pretty amazing and pretty. Uh, Pretty sweet uh, integration. So, one, thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, a follow up on, you know, because you kind of explained the background of what open source meant to you. Um, have you had to think about revisiting that decision, or have have you thought about maybe forking into, you know, bigger enterprise uh, solutions uh, integrated in here as well, or do you think? The, the idea will be to, you know, double down, stay open source and keep pushing in that direction. Really great uh, points and questions. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of start with the first one about Wireshark uh, because that's, that's a really great point and something that's always been very important to me. Um, and just by means of illustration, you know, uh, I, many, many years ago, this is probably 2008 um, at the, the time that I started the project, I uh, in a corporate job, I had a, a commercial IDS, which, you know, generated IDS alerts and it gave you some kind of ability to pivot to at least some limited packet capture. Uh, but in order to do so, it, it literally took like 10 clicks to get there, you know, and it was, it was almost like that old uh, Tootsie Pop commercial from the 80s. I don't know if you guys remember, but how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop? Doug, we you just know, explained live like, CD and you're going back to the Tootsie Pop Owl, man. <laughs> I told, I'm telling you, I'm a grumpy old man. I got all kinds of eighties trivia. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's absolutely, 
you know, it was absolutely frustrating for me to try to work an incident and say, okay, here's an IDS alert, but the first thing I have to do is triage it, determine is this a true positive or a false positive? And to do that, I got to see packets, right? I got I to gotta drill down into the nitty gritty. But if you're going to make me click 10 times to get to anything that even remotely resembles some packet dumps, well, then that's just not efficient for me as an analyst. And so, you know, that's been kind of a, a guiding light for our project ever since then is, you know, we want to make it as efficient as possible. We want to remove as much friction as possible uh, because that, that part of the analysis equation is so very, very important. We do it so very often as defenders. Uh, we have to make that really fast and efficient. I, I think it's important to call that out because one of the biggest problems that we've seen throughout the industry is the amazing information that you can get from tools, but just the esoteric or esoteric, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, way that you have to use them. I mean, I remember taking a two-day course about Wireshark and while it was awesome, this was like, you know, this is back when me and John were working together in Cami's, is it was awesome, but it was like, man, there's, you know, I felt like that old orange juice commercial, it's got to be a better way to do this. Like, how does it take this much information to just to say, show me that packet right there, or this packet's terrible, you should look here. And just building security, I need the way that you've built it. And I'm, I'm literally deploying it on AWS right now because I want to start playing with it because I haven't touched it in many, many years. Uh, it, it's just nice to see how the things are meshed together to say the fewest clicks possible to get the most valuable information for you and your team. That's the key. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, I love Wireshark myself, uh, and it has some amazing capabilities. Um, but, however, uh, you know, I, I can't go and really throw a four gigabyte PCAP file into Wireshark and expect to do really efficient analysis inside of it. It's just not what it was really designed to do. Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've seen some analysts kind of make that mistake of, you know, I'm just going to open this ginormous PCAP file inside of Wireshark. And, and that's, my, that's, that's my only tool. Well, it's a great tool, but, you know, the most efficient use of that tool is let's start with some IDS alerts and, you know, your IDS alert really kind of starts your, your investigative process. And then maybe pivot into just the packets that were related to that IDS alert. Uh, or maybe we do some threat hunting. Maybe we find some Zeek logs that show some suspicious HTTP traffic or some suspicious SSL traffic. And maybe we open up that one particular stream in Wireshark and really dig down into the nitty gritty packet by packet details inside of Wireshark. That's what it's really designed to do. And so that's, that's a big part of, of this, you know, whole community effort too, is really figuring out, okay, we've got all these different tools and there, there's all these Venn diagrams of how these tools kind of overlap in functionality, but it's really trying to figure out, okay, what's the best tool for this specific job? And then this tool over here is really best at this specific job. And then how do we kind of create that pivot point between those two tools so that from a, a user experience perspective, folks really kind of have the best of both worlds right at their fingertips and it's really efficient and it's, it's really kind of friction free. Awesome. Thank, thanks for, uh, 
Thanks for clarifying that or you know, putting that all together. Uh, Cause it, again, lo- love it very much. Um, and, and I wanted to do a follow-up on the open source portion of this. Um, so we, we covered uh, a couple podcasts ago, we were talking about uh, Elastic suing AWS and the kind of kerfluffle that came up there with the kind of rough idea of, you know, it's open source, so someone can take your tool and kind of do their own thing with it. Um, is that something that's a concern for you or does, does that keep you up at night or are you kind of of the of the feeling of like, hey, this is this is really complicated. I, I, I got a specific purpose and I'm doing a specific thing and and this is not something I'm too uh, worried about. You know, I think it's uh, it's a really interesting situation that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I've, I've been involved in open source since 1997 and uh, it's really kind of amazing to see how how open source as as an overall community has has kind of changed over the years and has kind of grown up. Um, and you know, one of the things that I've seen is that way back in 1997, you know, there was a tremendous sort of um, misunderstanding of open source. There was a mistrust of open source. Um, there were a lot of corporations that you know they just didn't want to even hear about anything open source. Uh, but that has totally, totally changed. You know, uh, open source is really kind of the new normal for many organizations now. Um, but then that does create its own kind of set of challenges when it comes to, um, you know, these sort of unlevel playing fields and and kind of, as you alluded to, the Elastic versus Amazon lawsuit there creates some uncomfortable situations, right? And so, uh, for us, we are we are partners with Elastic. Uh, we we love Elastic. Uh, the Elastic stack is is built right into Security Onion, as you know. And so, you know, when when Elastic announced uh, a couple of months ago that they were changing their licensing as a result of this uh, issue with Amazon. You know, then then we had to kind of figure out, okay, what does that really mean for us? Uh, and so we had to take a lot of time to really kind of digest uh, what this new Elastic license is all about. What does it really mean? What does it mean for us specifically? And what does it mean for our customers and community? And so, you know, we looked at uh, what's now called Elastic License Version 2 uh, and really kind of said, okay, well, this is, uh, this is a free and open license, but it's not an OSI approved open source license. So there's some subtlety there. There's some nuance there, right? Um, and so what we then had to kind of determine was, okay, well, looking at our customers and our community, you know, are they generally going to accept Elastic License version 2? And we kind of estimated that, you know, probably 90% of our community, they'll look at Elastic License version two and they'll say, that's cool. No problem. Um, there may be some other percentage that are, you know, really hardcore open source purists. And they say, well, it's not OSI approved. It's not an actual traditional open source license. So therefore we frown upon it. And and me personally, I'm I'm very torn because you know I'm I in my heart of hearts I'm kind of an open source purist from 1997. So it's 
it's challenging for me to, to kind of give up on my open source roots. Uh, but as a businessman, I have to be pragmatic and I have to say, well, you know, the only real solution at this point in time for us to continue development of the Security Onion project is to kind of embrace Elastic License version two. And since we have a pretty good feeling that the vast majority of our folks will accept it with no problems, you know, that means that uh, we, can, we can continue development, we can continue uh, integrating new versions of the Elastic stack. And, you know, so that means then that um, we, we did put out a blog post that kind of talks through all of this uh, from kind of multiple angles and multiple viewpoints. But one of the things that we've talked about uh, is, you know, for those folks that are open source purists, if there is some sort of a, an open source fork that becomes available at some point in time, we may take a look at that and see if it makes sense. Number one, if it's viable. Number two, if it's, if we're able to provide some integration there, that might be something that we can pursue to allow folks to have that choice of Elastic License version two as the default, or if you want this open source license, you can choose that. Again, that's, we kind of put that out in the blog post. That's not, there are no open source uh, forks available yet. So we don't know what's going to happen there, but, you know, we did put out, um, uh, a new release of Security Onion 2340 uh, with the latest version of the Elastic Stack under Elastic License version two. Uh, and so that, that integration works, it works well. And, um, you know, we are basically at this point um, kind of changing our, our terminology of, you know, being a, a free and open source distro as we used to be and, you know, kind of following Elastic's lead and making that we're, we're a free and open distro. Uh, and so that way we can incorporate their technology using their license. Um, and for the most part, most folks are, are really concerned about the free and open part. Uh, and so we're, we're still checking that box and still allowing folks to, to really kind of spin up the greatest, uh, the best of breed open tools and be able to defend their environments. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, and, and thank you, because uh, I, I know that was not a super easy question to answer, and obviously there's very complex relationships as you know you have very many strategic partners. So I appreciate you answering that question candidly and, and talking us through your thought process. I, I think there's a lot of people out there that are kind of struggling through the same thing and, and hearing how you think about it, I think it's gonna be really beneficial. So uh, thanks for taking that question. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you a, a somewhat easier one, which is where do you see Security Onion going next? I mean, what's your next focal point or your next big project that you're trying to, to drive with the product? Are you going to add new features, work with new tools, laser focus on what you already have and continue to make it the best of breed or, or what's the plan? I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of goes back to something that I mentioned earlier about you know, this delicate balancing act of we got all these great ideas. Uh, and so you have to kind of take all these great ideas and kind of filter it down a little bit, make sure you're not getting hit by the, uh, the good idea fairy. Oh yes. Uh, and, and then based on what ideas are left over that you deem to be viable, 
what can we actually implement? What can we actually support and maintain for the future? So, for example, you know, we we released Security Onion 2 last October, and that was essentially a, a brand new platform developed from the ground up, fully containerized, um, and incorporates a, a lot of new technology that we never had before. So it's got things like playbooks, it's got things like case management, and uh, you know that those integrations are working great. Uh, but what we're talking about now is is really even deeper integrations with those kind of things. Uh, so right now, the the playbook functionality is really kind of a separate web app, um, and so there's. You know, I talked before about friction. There's a little bit of friction there when you're kind of moving from one web app to another. Uh, but what we're talking about doing now is kind of taking that playbook functionality and integrating it directly into Security Onion Console, what we call SOC. And you know, by doing so, it's going to remove that last little bit of friction that's there and make things even more streamlined. You know, so there's a lot of little things like that that are really kind of quality of life issues when it comes to your day-to-day analysis work of, you know, this works, but it's it kind of goes back to that PCAP example that we talked about earlier. Well, this works, but it takes me 10 clicks to get there. And if I could get that down to five clicks, that'd be even better. And if I could get that down to two clicks, it'd be phenomenal. That's really what we're trying to go after right now. Uh, is really trying to fine-tune all of these integrations. At the same time, uh, we do hear from customers in the community that, hey, it'd be great if you could integrate with this piece of software over here and this piece of software over here. Uh, and, and we love all those ideas and we, we listen to those ideas. And um, you know, we just have to figure out how we can satisfy and balance all of those uh, ideas with the, the limited number of hours that we have. Uh, so as I mentioned before, we are, we are growing as a company. We are hiring more engineers and developers to try to help us move on more of those ideas more quickly. Uh, but it's always going to be a balancing act of, of what can you afford to do and, and what's, what's going to have to take, uh, you know, it's all about prioritization at the end of the day, you know, in any organization, you guys are well familiar with this, you know, you've you're always going to have more work than you can actually do in a day. So you've got to prioritize and you've got to figure out what's the, what's the most bang for the buck, what's going to give you the most return on investment. And, and selfishly, I wanted to ask a kind of, since we're talking about moving in the future and, and uh, the, the main driver for starting this podcast in, in the beginning was we wanted to talk about cloud and cloud security and use it as a uh, education opportunity. Uh, so I haven't read a whole bunch online or seen much as far as cloud implementation of this. I noticed from your Twitter feed, uh, you are you're already in the AWS marketplace, so you can just click and deploy a Security Onion uh, seamlessly from AWS. Um, so if I'm one of the Marines listening to this podcast or, or, or anyone listening, and I'm thinking about how I'm going to deploy Security Onion in the cloud, are your customers asking for this to be deployed as kind of like a... Uh, span so like like a, a tap on your VPC and and shove everything uh, over to Security Onion for inspection or is, is are the customers generally asking for this as more of like a uh, service chain that this kind of like logically logically be placed in front of 
uh, one of their big appliances or something along those lines? Or are you kind of getting a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, we we designed the AMI to be kind of like our, our ISO image in that, you know, it's it's kind of a universal image and it can be deployed in several different scenarios. It can be kind of a network sensor that's analyzing traffic. It can be kind of a, a manager node that controls an entire distributed deployment. It could be a search node that's really that elastic search back in that's storing the data and allowing you to search across it. So it really kind of handles all those different use cases. And so, for example, you might be you know, fully invested in AWS and you've got your VPC and you turn on that, that nice native VPC traffic mirroring capability that we had been asking Amazon for so many years for and they finally granted to us. And so, you know, you could do an entire distributed deployment right there in your VPC and you've got a manager node, you've got some sensor nodes, you've got some search nodes and your sensor nodes are collecting traffic from your AWS traffic mirror. And, and that's a 100% cloud-based, uh, you know, VPC adversary detecting monster, right? That's, uh, that's a great way to deploy it. We've also got folks that are kind of a, a, a hybrid deployment where maybe they build the backend in AWS, but maybe they have some, you know, traditional on-prem networks and they deploy some some real physical hardware sensors there collecting from real taps or, or real span ports. And then those sensors are actually sending all their logs up to that backend AWS instance. Um, and we can really handle all of the, all of those use cases. Um, you know, and that's, that's what makes our, our solution so flexible is that it's, you know, it's all the same core software. Uh, and we, we now kind of distribute it as, an ISO image or an AMI, and we've got a couple of other distribution mechanisms as well, but it's all the same core software. So we can kind of meet you wherever you are and whatever kind of use case you want to deploy in, and we can plug into your architecture, we can plug into your enterprise and, and help you track those adversaries down. So Doug, I, I want to ask you another kind of softball question only because I, this comes up all the time in the world that, that I'm in and you run an open source software company that does provide services and you're actively growing and hiring. How exactly do you make money running a, a company that gives away software for free? <laughs> I love that question. Um, making money on free software is not impossible, but it is <laughs> challenging. Um, so, you know, again, I kind of go back to 1997 uh, in my, my introduction to the world of open source, you know, I, I had grown up on traditional commercial software. You know, I knew about Microsoft. I knew about, you know, all the standard companies. When I read this article about open source, it just kind of blew my mind. It didn't make any sense. You know, how can you, how can you actually have a viable business model around free and open source software? And, you know, my first introduction there was Red Hat Linux. This was 1997. So it wasn't even Red Hat Enterprise Linux back then. It was Red Hat Linux 5.0. I remember driving down to Best Buy and paying $50 for a box of Red Hat 5.0 CDs. And um, because, floppies, you know, I uh, not floppies, okay, okay. Um, 
you know, so I was, I was on dial up at the time. That's why I couldn't just go and download it. Um, and that's why I had to spend the 50 bucks on, on Red Hat 5.0. But, you know, that, that really kind of helped me to see that, okay, there's this company called Red Hat and they have figured out a way to make money on free software. And so how did they do that? Well, they, they figured out a subscription model. They figured out, hey, folks are willing to pay for support. Folks are willing to pay for training. Um, I actually took a Red Hat training class. I was a Red Hat certified engineer. Uh, and so, you know, that really kind of showed me that, hey, you know, you can, you can absolutely give software away for free. You can build products and services around that free software. And, you know, here's the kind of interesting thing from a business perspective. You know, if I think about the way that commercial companies do advertising and think about the size of their marketing budgets, you know, I could take that huge marketing budget that a traditional commercial software company has, and I could invest that budget into developers and engineers give the software away for free and use that free software as free marketing, right? And, and so ultimately free software becomes the best marketing that money can buy, right? Because if, if you build a good piece of free software that spreads by word of mouth and you build a community around it where folks are passionate about your software and they can't wait to tell others about, hey, you know, you got to go and try this thing called Wireshark. Hey, you got to go and try this thing called Snort. Hey, you got to go and try this thing called Security Onion. You've been there, done that, right? So, you know, that's that's where, you know, it can, it can really be a, a, a multiplier of effort uh, where, you know, you can, even though it's counterintuitive to give this thing away for free, yes, it can actually be worth it in the end. Um to get to your 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 actual point, uh, you know, what do we as a company do? I kind of started Security Onion Solutions in 2014 with a three-phase business model. And, and part of this was kind of formed around that Red Hat model that I talked about. Part of this was formed around my experience as a SANS instructor. And so, you know, after having taught classes for SANS, I knew that I could, I could teach classes for Security Onion and folks were asking for that. Uh, before I started the company, folks were asking for training. And so I kind of put two and two together and said, okay, well, there's demand here and I know how to teach a class. I know how to build a class. So that's phase one of the business model. We're going to offer training for Security Onion. So that was the very first thing that I did when I started the company in 2014. I announced a public class. I'm going to be teaching a class in this location on this date. Here's the Eventbrite registration page and folks signed up, you know, so I, I literally started the company with no more investment than purchasing a MacBook Pro. That's the only money that I put in to start this company um, because that's really all I needed to, you know, do development and to teach classes. That's it. Uh, so that was phase one of the business model. With training, we can kind of take a student somewhere around 80% of the way to being self-sufficient with our software. But that last 20%, you know, it's the old Pareto principle of 80-20 rule. That last 20% is things that are unique to 
their environment or perhaps the adversaries that they face. And that's where we kind of plug in with professional services. That's phase two of the business model. You know, so uh, we can we can teach you a lot in the training class, but you know, there's going to be that one odd thing in your environment that you really need another set of eyes and another set of hands helping you over WebEx or Zoom or whatever the case may be to really kind of fix that problem or, you know, optimize the sensors or, or do the tuning or whatever needs to happen. So that professional services, that was kind of phase two of the business model. Professional services is not as scalable as training is, because if you think about it, I can go and teach a class of 20 to 40 students. And in a week-long class, I can, I can do a considerable amount of instruction to a large number of people uh, and really help them kind of supercharge their operations and go from zero to 60 very quickly and efficiently. Professional services is more one-on-one, uh, so it's not nearly as scalable, but it's something that's really kind of required uh, for a lot of organizations. They really need that additional sort of helping hand to make sure that things are going the way they should. Phase three of the business model uh, is hardware appliances and now the, the AMI as well. Uh, and so that really kind of comes down to, you know, we've, we've tried to make the software as easy to use as possible. And we've offered the training and the professional services, uh, but you know, still there's things that we can optimize even further because you know, wouldn't it be great if we can just drop ship you an appliance that's already got the software installed and the hardware in that box is already optimized. We've already picked the right kind of NIC. We already know exactly how many CPU cores are in there, how much RAM, how much disk space, what kind of disks, you know, we, we know exactly what kind of hardware specs we need to put into the box to make sure it hits a certain amount of performance based on whatever kind of workloads you're going to be putting it up against. You know, so that's something that we announced a couple of years ago. And that, that business line has really kind of taken off. Uh, we're seeing, you know, tremendous amounts of interest, you know, because as we all know, you know, we're all kind of overworked and underpaid, you know, and we're all kind of looking for ways that we can automate the process. We're all kind of looking for ways to make ourselves more efficient. And, you know, security teams really kind of across the world are in this boat of, you know, they, they have more work than they could possibly do in a week's time. And they certainly don't have time to go and you know, manually spec out hardware and uh, manually install Security Onion, even though we've made it as easy to install and configure as possible, you know, they, they're they willing to spend some money to automate that process. And so, you know, that's really kind of taken off. And the, the AMI is really kind of the natural extension of that, you know, for folks that, that do have those cloud environments, you know, offer them an AMI that's going to make that so much more automated and so much more efficient for them. So that's really kind of the, the three phase business model that we have. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've been able to, you know, from a business standpoint, as I mentioned before, I, I started this company simply by purchasing a MacBook Pro, you know, it's, um, so I, I bootstrapped this company. We've never taken on any outside investment uh, and we've been able to just grow organically based on, 
that three-phase business model and the demand that just keeps on coming and keeps on coming. So we're going to continue to grow as, as long as the, the demand is there. So it sounds like you had a, a pretty deliberate process of, you know, you get your three phases of the business model. That's actually very intuitive. I, I bet when you have the, uh, the company town halls, it's super easy for the employees to understand that. Is, is that something, did you have enough time to think about that before you had to start executing or was the plane in the air and you're kind of like doing some riveting as you move around? <laughs> so, you know, I, I had... I had toyed with this idea of starting a company for a couple of years before pulling the trigger on it. And, you know, part of that is if you think about that time frame, you know, we had gone through some rough times in the economy. We had gone through some rough times in, uh, you know, the housing market and, and all these things. And, you know, we had several close friends that you know, they, they lost their job or they, they had problems with their mortgage payments and wound up in foreclosure and, you know, all these things. And, you know, so it was when I first started thinking about starting a company, it wasn't the right time um, just in terms of where the economy was and where we were financially. You know, I, I didn't feel like we could afford to take that risk just in, in being, you know, fiscally conservative I wasn't ready to take that leap of faith just yet. So I had, you know, a period of time where I was thinking about this thing and trying to to look into the crystal ball and figure out, okay, if we take this leap of faith, is it going to work out? Um, is is the market going to respond the way that we think that it will? Or, you know, is this just going to be a big flop and, you know, we're going to wind up moving back in with my parents or something like that, you know? So I, uh, I was very conservative, uh, with kind of the planning, uh, and the, the initial execution of it, you know, looking back in retrospect, hindsight is always 2020. I probably could have started this company a year or two earlier, and we probably would have been just fine. Um, but you know, I wouldn't change anything, right? Because, you know, it's, it's worked out just fine. And, um, you know, so, but to kind of get back to your point, you know, there, even though I, I had been thinking about this for a while, um, and I kind of had in my head the way that I think that it's going to unfold, um, you know, you always have to expect the unexpected. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's certainly the case in any endeavor, and uh, 2020 was certainly a reminder of that, for, I think, for everybody, you know, to expect the unexpected because nobody really saw this worldwide pandemic coming and how it would change markets and businesses and, you know, the way that that business is done uh, as a whole. And so, you know, starting in 2014, yeah, there were absolutely times when I kind of felt like I was. I was holding the airplane together while we were flying through the air uh, and kind of flying by the seat of my pants. Um, and, you know, that's one of those situations where, you know, you've, you've got to have, you've got to have that intestinal fortitude to say, you know what, we're playing a long game here 
And we're going to make it through today. We're going to make it through this week. We're going to make it through this month. We're going to make it through this year. And we're going to keep on grinding and we're going to keep on executing. And we're going to keep, you know, making a dent in that vision that we have for the future. Uh, And so, you know, that's, um, I think that's probably a a great takeaway for your audience that, you know, wherever they are in, in their uh, career, wherever they are in their, their walk of life, you know, don't give up, you know, keep pushing through, keep grinding. Um, you know, you've just got to, to realize that there are going to be dips. There are going to be those unexpected things that come along. Um, but just keep on pushing through. And and you mentioned 2020, which a, a really weird year and kind of, I think rough for a lot of people, but, uh, you hit a huge milestone, which was a million downloads. Uh, do you have a stock ticker like uh, in 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 your <laughs> office that uh, watches the downloads creep up? Is that how you measure uh, the success of the business, or is there another metric that you measure? We're, we're definitely on a kind of you know measure what matters and 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 stick to the numbers and make numbers based and threat informed types of decisions. So interested in how you measure and, and how you view your success and, and, and how you communicate that to the company. Yeah. So downloads is an interesting metric, right? Um, and so as you mentioned, we, we did hit 1 million downloads in 2020. Uh, we were actually over 2 million downloads now. Um, and so, you know, it's, Whoa. It's still kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing to me, you know, again, going back to 2008, you know, if you, if you would have told me back then that we would hit 2 million downloads, I I would just think you're absolutely crazy. Right. Um, so that is something that we monitor. I don't look at it on a daily basis. Um, I look at it once a month. I go and look at our, our download counters and we have a, a spreadsheet where we track that, um, and so it's, you know, it's good to have some metrics on, the, you know, the, the overall uptake in the community. But, you know, there's, there's kind of some, some interesting qualities to that download number. So, for example, uh, traditionally, when we kind of calculated our download number, that download number was really just the number of ISO image downloads, um, because that's that's really the only visibility we had at all into what folks were downloading, even though that that was not our only installation source, right? Meaning that uh, for the longest time, for you know the last ten years, folks could either download our ISO image or they could install Ubuntu and then install our packages on top of that. And so, for folks that choose that kind of second alternate installation route of manually installing Ubuntu, we didn't have any metrics whatsoever for that, right? So the the downloads number doesn't actually even represent the entire number of net new installations. Um, at least it didn't for the longest amount of time. We're, we're kind of changing the way that we track some of our downloads to get a little bit more visibility into that. But, you know, it's still an interesting thing in that, again, kind of contrast it to the world of traditional commercial software where, you know, if, if you're looking at a, a traditional commercial vendor and you're interested in their software, 
and you want to take it for a test drive, you got to go and go to their website and you got to sign up and you got to talk to a salesperson. You have to get like a, a demo license key or something like that. And so they're tracking every single one of their installations, even if it's just for a demo. Uh, but, you know, the compare that to us in kind of this free and open market. Anybody can go to our website and download the software and they could take that ISO image and they could, you know, go and deploy it on 10 sensors or 100 sensors or 1,000 sensors. They could share it with their friends. They could share it with their community. And so, you know, there's- They could make a live CD that, and install it anywhere. They I just want to throw yeah. that out there. Options on the table. Wait, what's a live CD again? <laughs> and we've come full circle. Okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but, you know, so there's there's a lot of nuance in that- that downloads number, right? There's a, there's a lot of meaning that goes along with that. And it's not just kind of a clear cut number of this is the strict number of net new installations of the software. So it's, it's kind of, we have to have something in order to kind of gauge the temperature of how we're doing with the community and, and how we're engaging with the community. Um, but at the same time, it's a balancing act, right? Because we could we could go to a, a crazy end of the spectrum, and we could uh, sort of collect all of this telemetry, and and then folks would get upset about, well, you're really kind of overreaching there, and you're collecting a little bit too much telemetry, and you're making me uncomfortable, especially for a security distro. So that's always a delicate balancing act in terms of what kind of metrics you're collecting there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's not. I think to your original point, you know, it's it's not our only kind of measure of how we're doing as a company or as a community. Uh, it's certainly one of the the metrics that we look at. Uh, but you know, what I, I think is is more important is is really the the human connections and really you know getting out to conferences and, and hopefully we can actually get out to some physical conferences this year, maybe later in the year. Uh, and, and talking to folks and shaking hands and interacting with folks and and seeing the difference that we make. You know, when I, you know, before the whole worldwide pandemic thing struck, when I was going out to conferences and meeting folks and shaking hands, you know, it was so gratifying to talk to folks that they used our software, they loved it. And, you know, their eyes would just light up when they would talk about how they were able to catch this bad guy who was doing this stuff and they would have never found it if it weren't for our software. And, you know, that's to me that that really matters a whole lot more than just a single number that represents a, a number of, of ISO images being downloaded. So it's something that we monitor, but it's 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 not the only metric in the world. Got it. So I, I want to ask you a question along a different path here. Do you use Security Onion to monitor Security Onion? <laughs> and is that another yes. layer of oh, Security yes. Onion? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It it's Security Onion it's all about the layers. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> we are all about the layers. We are all about eating our own dog food. Got it. Uh, or, or drinking our own champagne, as some folks would say. Um, yeah, dog so, food has fallen yes. out as a as a term recently, and I've heard that champagne analogy more and more, which I feel it's just all of us in the IT community 
is having delusions of grandeur, if you will. I, I love the idea. Of <laughs> it shouldn't taste wonderful when you're or or survive a pandemic. I mean, just you know, yeah, right. There. Like we've all been hungry and need to go to the grocery store and been like, eh. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but we uh, we absolutely do use our own software to monitor our own networks. Uh, so we we have multiple deployments of Security Onion monitoring multiple networks, both on-prem and in AWS and cloud environments. Uh, so we, we're absolutely, you know, it's, uh, to, you know, to make a broader point out of it, you know, we've, I think we've all seen kind of security companies that they, they see that there's a, you know, a great market in the world of cybersecurity software. And so they come up with a product and they put it out there and they make some money on it and, and maybe they say things like, you know, security is our number one priority, uh, but, you know, by their actions, it's that might not necessarily now, right? line up. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Well, hey, can we riff on we, that for a second then? Because uh, do, do you like get kept up at night about fear of breaches and things like that as the CEO of a security company these days? I mean, I'm, I'm going to use a specific example here as someone who has a ton of ubiquity home networking equipment that I just discovered this week has now been massively and terribly breached, which is something I didn't expect from that company because of course, security first and all the other things that every company says right now. But like, do you feel additional pressure within your own company to like not miss stuff and be more secure? It is a significant amount of pressure. Uh, and it is something that, you know, I try to make sure it is our actual number one priority, not just in words, but in actions as well, to make sure that we are truly doing the right thing when it comes to security. And, you know, just to give you some examples, um, a couple of years ago, we, you know, we, we set up uh, an email address for folks to responsibly disclose security vulnerabilities. You know, we're trying to follow responsible disclosure processes and do the right thing there. We set up an email address for that. And um, so on New Year's Eve at about 8 o'clock p.m., we were notified of a vulnerability in our software. Uh, and so this is just about the worst possible time. New Year's time. Eve, 8 p.m. Yes. Not a sober you, employee you, on you. That's where, the sh that's where the champagne comment came from. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, this is just about the worst possible time that you could be notified of something like this, right? Um, but, you know, we had sort of made it our policy to do the right thing. And so, you know, our, our policy is if we receive something on that email address, we're going to respond to it within an hour. You know, that, that might not be an actual fix, but that's going to be, thank you for sending this in. We will take a look at this and we will you know, respond back as quickly as we can, but at least acknowledging something within an hour. Um, and so, you know, true to policy, I, I acknowledge that email within an hour. Um, and then, you know, then it became a matter of, okay, what do we need to do to actually patch this? What do we need to do to actually uh, fix it, vet the fix, do some quality assurance and get it out as quickly as possible? Uh, and so, you know, that's what we did over, you know, the first few days of that particular year. I don't remember. I think this was probably three years ago now. Um, but, you know, that's just an example of, 
you know, we really do try to do the right thing. You know, if, if somebody notifies us of an issue, we're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to try to hand wave it away. We're not going to try to say, well, you know, that's, that's really kind of mitigated by this. And, you know, attackers couldn't really take advantage of this. You know, we're going to try to do the right thing. We're going to follow, you know, what has been kind of agreed upon as a mature incident response policy for uh, a cybersecurity company. And, you know, we want to, we want to make sure that we are doing the right thing by our customers and that they see that and that, you know, they can, they can count on us to make sure that uh, we're going to continue to do the right thing. And, and we're not going to uh, just hand wave it away and, and say security is our number one priority as, as we hear from a lot of the post uh, breach yes. announcements that, that, that we all kind of are, are starting to get kind of whiplash by yeah. it's, you know, it's almost a weekly announcement now of what's the, what's the incident du jour, right? It, it is funny. We hear what a priority security is for people in there. Here's my massive breach uh, announcement. I feel like it's part of the uh, public uh, or the PR release kit that these cybersecurity insurance firms have when you call them and say, I've had a breach. They're like, here's the email to send out. Here's the post to put on your blog security first, you know, in the subject line, like, it just feels so trite and verboten and just overplayed with everything. Yep, it's a it's a word document. Yep. You just copy pasta from there and you're good to go, right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what I'm paying my premiums for. <laughs> I, I need to cleanse my palate of this whole uh, na- this whole nastiness. So, Kyle, yes, why don't you uh, help me cl- cleanse the palate with a hot take? Oh, ooh, okay. I, I think I've got a good one for today. And Doug has laid all the groundwork for this. So I just want to throw this out here. Security can be hard for a lot of people, especially if you're in a small to medium business where budgets are constrained. And I want to just call out that there's a lot of polarization in the security world where people are, you know, it's got to be command line and API based or GTFO, or, or it's like, if you're using a GUI, you're an idiot and you're wrong. And I just want to throw this out there that Doug and his company have really focused on taking things that are difficult and making them a whole lot less difficult. And and by that product helped to spread significantly more mature security folks with significantly more mature security tools to places where they otherwise would never have ended up due to complexity of setup or deployment or integration. So I would like all of our listeners out there to keep thinking about this, right? If you can help make something that is complex easier for people to use, you are doing net good for the world. If you can do that in the security space, you are doing net good for the entire cybersecurity world. And on behalf of that, I just want to say, Doug, thanks for making this stuff easier for all of us. Uh, And as two guys who use your product all the time, awesome work, brother. And thanks for doing what you do. That is my hot take for today, John. Uh, Make it take fewer clicks for me to be successful. That's what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, Doug, any uh, final thoughts or anything that you wanted to plug uh, before we had the outro? Um, you know, I, I I gotta respond to that hot take with my own hot take. Oh, you know, yes, I, yes, hot, hot take yes, response. Do it. You've you've triggered me. I'm 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 totally <laughs> triggered now. Um, so I consider myself to be, you know, sort of a a command line connoisseur. You know, I, I love the command line. I love the Unix mindset of one utility for one job. 
and you connect them with pipes. And so I love things like Ket, Cat and Grep and Sed and Onk and Unique and all these great Unix command line utilities. And, and I've used them millions of times in my life. But I have to say that when I put on my incident response hat, I don't want to be tripping over command line syntax when I'm in the heat of the moment and I'm pursuing an adversary and trying to knock them down as quickly as possible. And so, you know, as much as I love the command line and as much as there are those instances where I really have no choice but to use the command line for, you know, there's some obscure use case out there, whatever the case may be. But, you know, if, if I can do it in a pointy clicky web interface without having to trip over that command line syntax, I'm, I'm absolutely going to do that 99% of the time. Okay. And I, so Doug, I want to follow that and say at 8 PM on new year's Eve, are you happy you had a GUI? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You're just really bringing everything full circle. I got it, aren't man. You? I got it. <laughs> So let's see, that particular 8 p.m. vulnerability was actually in a GUI component. Yes. So yes. What, what you're saying then is that if we didn't have that GUI component, I could have enjoyed my New Year's Eve. Done, uh, done, done. Yeah, the plot thickens, right? Mm. It's almost like there's um, layers to this. <laughs> oh, there's it's all kinds of like layers. layers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think I would absolutely agree with you that it's it's all about the what's the overall net good of the situation, and I think it's the I think it's absolutely the case that for me personally as an incident responder, I am more efficient with graphical tools, even though I love my command line tools and and I think they're awesome. Uh, and you know, for, for the vast majority of incident responders out there, uh, I think graphical tools are, are probably the way to go. And I think that's where the greatest amount of good is. And, and to your point, you know, it's, it provides that ability to bring newer folks into the field that, that may not be, you know, Unix neck beards like me, you know, they may not have all of those many years of, of command line Kung Fu experience. Um, and, and that's, you know, we need more security analysts. We, we are, there is such a tremendous deficit of analysts worldwide. You know, we're going to have to be able to bring new folks in and get them trained up quickly without having to run them through the gauntlet of Unix command line Kung Fu. Outstanding. Well, we are we are lucky. We got two hot takes and, and a decent amount of back and forth. Doug, thank you so much uh, for coming on the on the cast. And dear listeners, thanks for joining us. Just a reminder, you can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Hector Alejandro. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star review and that amazing, amazing comment. 